Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you're in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Scale. Hey listeners, it's Will here. Our mission is to help the AEC industry protect itself by making technology easy. If you've ever listened to our show, then you know that the three pillars of scaling a business are people, process, and technology. So if you suspect technology is your weak link, then book a call with us to see where we can help maximize your company's IT and cybersecurity strategy. Just go to buildingscale.net slash help. Today's guest is Eve Reno. Eve is a CEO and co-founder of Fieldwire. He has a master's degree in civil and environmental engineering from Stanford University and was a paratrooper in the French Army. Prior to starting Fieldwire, Eve held leadership roles in the consumer software industry at Ubisoft, where he led development teams. For listeners who don't know, Fieldwire is a construction field management platform designed for the job site. Members of your team can view plans, photos, and tasks all in real time. Eve grew Fieldwire from the idea with five people to a robust company in the construction space with over 250. In Q4 of 2021, Fieldwire was acquired by a little company called Filty. Uh, and it makes lots of sense because Fieldwire is used in 100 countries, six of the seven continents, and powers more than a million commercial, industrial, heavy civil, and residential projects worldwide. Uh, with that said, Eve, welcome to the show. And why not Why not Antarctica? What are, why are you guys are slacking? Why are, are we not doing stuff in Antarctica yet? That's That'd be the only thing I'd say. So that's uh so first of all thanks for having me on the show. Uh second of all we are doing Antarctica. We actually have a fire stopping company that is using us in Antarctica. So uh, oh my I, god. I have, go, I have to go back then. 7 of 7 continents uh field wires in. So congratulations to you for literally taking over the world. Yeah, this is the most extreme offline use case because uh, they were talking about the fact that they do go offline for almost like weeks at a time when they're when they're on some facilities over there and then they come back after a month and everything gets uploaded. So it's interesting. It happens. We have Antarctica customers. That's all. Congrat one. Congratulations. You could sell uh, snow to uh, to the polar bears. So look at that. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So uh, Eve, tell us a backstory. Tell us uh, really about you, how you got into the industry, uh, as well as tell us more about Fieldwire. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, so... Uh, you summarized it pretty good. Like, so I grew up in France. My parents uh, are both engineers, uh, and 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 you know, on top of of their their day jobs, like one of their passion was like buying old houses that were uh, completely decrepit and and remodeling them and redoing them. And so, like, I've I've grown up on construction sites of old farms that were being remodeled into like super nice like residential houses and then my parents would sell it and then we would move somewhere else etc so that's that's kind of like how i grew up in between kind of like just bags of cement and and you know like uh insulation foam and stuff like that so that was a that's a good experience and i witnessed physically construction there uh, at least for the small scale residential side you know in an era where 
you would take photos, then you would have to take those photos to be developed, and then you would organize those in binders. Like imagine doing a, a punch list back then and how it's just freaking detailed and, and heavy it had to be. Um, and so I think I had a, had a pretty good idea of, 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 of what the grind was and running a small scale project like that. And so, you know, I studied engineering. I actually did like CS and mechanical engineering in France. At the time, I was working more on the, you know, I think my goal was to become like a heavy civil engineer, uh, work on bridges, like large facilities, stuff like that. Then I went to Stanford. What attracted me uh, in the civil engineering program at Stanford was uh, 4D modeling, was a big uh, was a big kind of like cool tech at the time. And, you know, I kind of went through this very transformational phase when I was at Stanford. I was like, it really felt like we're over-optimizing the design side of the industry. That honestly was pretty good. I mean, it's still very good. It keeps progressing, but it really wasn't in that zero to one moment. And at the same time, you were on a job site and it looked very much like what I had witnessed when I was a kid. And I was like, we're working on the wrong problem here. Like we should be bringing tech to to the people on the job site, like and take them out of the stone age. That being said, we're in like 2006, 2007 at the time. You know, there's no smartphone out there. Like you see some kind of like weird custom devices on job site and they're awful. And I was like, okay, this, this industry is cursed. We're never going to be able to fix <laughs> that problem. And I actually got to a point where I left the industry like out of frustration, like, um, I had spent a lot of time filling paperwork when I was in the paratroopers, you know, like, uh, interestingly enough, even when you're in a, you're in a combat unit, you know, you need a gun, you need to fill a paperwork, you need to be bringing back another paperwork, you need just, you fill forms all day long. And the reality is, that's kind of like what we have to offer to young, like, construction engineer when they get on the site, like a field engineer will fill paperwork, at least back in 06, 07, that that was the core of their job. And I was like, I don't want to go back doing that. So I actually left the industry entirely and I was like, okay, I know a little bit about just management and building teams. I know some engineering. I'm passionate about kind of like design and products. Like I like the tangible aspect of the industry. I was like, who's going to take me, right? Like what, what job can I do? And so I went to interview to a bunch of companies. I interviewed to some startups at the time. I interviewed with some product design companies. I interviewed with some gaming companies because being a big gamer myself, I was like, okay, that, that would be real cool. And Ubisoft gave me a team from scratch. So I was like, okay, if you're going to give like a, a development team to a 25 year old, like this is like, let's go. They didn't pay me very much. But you know what? Like I always, always followed kind of like the, the skill set and the passion first. So I was like, let's go do that. And I think I'm going to develop some good skills. So I did some really simple game. My first game was like a, a half million dollar game, like where it was a, as a game for kids, like a, a big, big top circus, it was called. But you know what? You learn a lot by just doing a product cycle, even on a on a on a game that just didn't really have a super good con consumer appeal or just wasn't. It was really about getting Wii games on the shelf because the Wii had just launched. But then after that, I did a good job on a game that actually didn't matter. So they gave me a bit bigger budget and a bigger team. And then I just kept growing and I went all the way to working on the on the Ghost Recon franchise at, at Ubisoft Ooh, on my last project, which was that's super a big fun. deal. Oh, and, man. And you know what? Like my last team was bad. Like I think it was probably between like, you know, 60, 70 people. Um, and and interestingly enough, I started seeing in games, like like in the tools we were using for our teams, kind of like the answer to some of the problem that I had experienced on job sites. And I was like, wow, if we could build that tool on mobile for construction people, that would be amazing. And so at one point when I got my green card at Ubisoft, I was kind of ready to go. Like I wasn't learning as much and I was kind of like 
going back to the I want to work on something tangible. I want to feel like I want to see what we're what we're building here and like have that have a lasting kind of like impact on society. And and I went back to construction because ultimately that's a sector that I really love. And I took all my learnings from Ubisoft. I was like, okay, we're gonna do a task management platform, you know, overlaid on plans for construction people. That was the the core belief. Um, and we're gonna distribute it like we distribute an online game. Like, so we're gonna run ads and people are gonna be able to download it themselves and it's gonna be free to use at first, but if they really like it, then they can upgrade to a premium solution. So it sounds really basic today, but back in like 2013, when we started the company, that was mind, mind blowing. Like nobody was running ads on Google in construction, like nobody was doing freemium in construction, et cetera. And so I think it worked really great. And so I think that's what took us to where we are now. So I need to ask you a really important question here. Go for it. What games were you playing at the age of 25 that you really liked? At the age of 25? Okay, that's a good question. I mean, I play way too much Counter-Strike. I mean, that was that was a, that's a big one. Homeworld was a, was, a, was a game that I've always liked, kind of like the, the adventure escapism of, of, of gaming and that like just experiencing things that you're not going to be able to experience in life. So... Just, you know, anything that is like space related, future related, like I think it's always been a mind blowing experience. So I think those those were but like Counter-Strike is a game that I played just way too, too much of the game that I've played the most in my life in terms of playing through a, through a, a single storyline is uh, I think the or- original Modern Warfare, because when I was working on Ghost Recon, it's basically you you study content like when you're in gaming you play you don't only play the games but you study the game you deconstruct them you try to find all this all the scenario breakdowns all the situation stuff like that and between black hawk down as a movie which is in my mind the greatest military movie made uh, like ever made in terms of the richness and the, the quality of like the storytelling and the scenario and and the first modern warfare i think like i must have watched black hawk down 20 times with like taking notes while watching it and stuff like that and same thing Modern Warfare, I probably played through the the single player campaign like I don't know, ten times end to end, just wow. taking notes. It's, wow! And then after that, you can speed through it. It's kind of crazy, but like you're you're basically trying to go back to a certain spot. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the uh, what was the team Infinity Ward that was working on that. Like those guys were elite at the time where where the first Modern Warfare came out. Like that was a really impressive team. Wow. wow. Okay. I appreciate that i appreciate the modern warfare on counter-strike i may or may not have uh done a little bit of that a little too much of that uh in my exactly. day look you can still be successful later on in life i was just about to say that's 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 a big thing here i think a lot of times we uh you know the entrepreneur that grinds and it's all i do and all this stuff it's like I was playing games too. Like that, that was also happening. Yeah, yeah. I was still enjoying my life, uh, you know, not not being miserable. So I mean, uh, this is how my my co-founder and I met at Ubisoft. Like even to this day, we still game together in the evening. That's kind of like our way to to chat about work in a in a more relaxed environment. Like you know, you're <laughs> grabbing a beer and you're gaming online, which makes our wives like crazy because they're like, you see each other all day long and you're gonna game with each other in the evening. But you know what? It works and we have to explain to them like the only reason that we are where we are is because like we're we're serious gamers and we we take our craft seriously so so uh, obviously our audience is uh owners you know high level leaders at construction and architecture yeah. engineering firms right but i think we might have a new audience now a new segment of just people that are video gamers that want to be successful not necessarily in the exactly. gaming space but like just want to like 
hey, you can still do this and have an amazing life. And that that's going to be it. So, uh, all right. So let's dive in. So you were at five people. You go to 250. Yep. That's that's massive growth in a very short uh, mm-hmm. amount of time. What what what's the big differences? What changed in your life? What changed in the culture? What like what what were all the first that you kind of experienced? So it's interesting. I think there are there are definitely a couple of phases, and and what you focus on changes quite dramatically. So I think the first phase of the company is probably when a company is between zero and one. I think it's the it's the product market fit part, and I think that's where you have to you have to project very hard what your company could be because you really have nothing to show for it, right? It's just two people, reasonably smart. You have a light track record, but nothing on the scale of like we've already built one company. This is our second one, you know, like that was our first company. So you have to convince everyone. Um, so interestingly enough, it's very easy to be bold when you're small. Like nobody knows you, nobody cares about what you're doing. So you can really do whatever you want. And worst case scenario, nobody ever knows about it. And best case scenario, it actually works. And that works. So the problem is not being bold. The problem is is really about just, I mean, I would say almost being right. It's just like be very focused on 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 doing something, doing it right, and and surviving. Like your your goal is to exist. You exist, you know, like you're trying to find a lawyer, you're trying to find your first like your first investors, et cetera, you're trying to, like, it's very easy to die when you make less than, I don't know, like 10 million a year. I think like for me, like I always had that vision. It's like the day where we make 10 million, you can't die anymore. Like, or you can die, but it's going to take 10, 20 years for you to die. Like there's so many levers you can pull when you have a little bit of revenue. But when you're small, like, I mean, and we almost died. I think we there was right before we raised our Series A, like we we flew very close to the sun. It's funny because our engineers were pretty smart. And they could kind of see the writing on the wall. And uh, I, I only learned that a couple of years after. But like uh, one of, uh, of our good friend who at the time was our, our head of engineering, Sam, told me, it was like, yeah, I did some napkin mass. And it was like, OK, I guess I should start polishing my resume because I think <laughs> one day he's going to show up and tell us we don't have money anymore. And um, so that was an example. But uh, but uh, then we had good support from our investors. We actually had investors that were really good, like Bloomberg Beta and like uh, uh, awesome, awesome seed investors. And they had told us, and it's like, guys, don't worry if you ever need money, just give us a call within a week. We will we will be able to get you a little bit of money on a on the same term as the seed fund. So we actually took a lot of risk, but we actually had a safety blanket, which is how you can take risk, you know, like, and that's a big part. So that first part, like the zero to one million of AR, I think is really about existing and just making sure you don't run out of money because that's that's what that's what's difficult. We built it in a really strange way because, as I said, like we we started distributing software and construction in the same way uh, we would we would have done games. Like what I love about gaming is there is nobody telling you the value of the product. Nobody's explaining you how to play the game. And I was like, that is a standard that is absolutely replicable in in a professional environment. Like it's like games can be incredibly complex, and people will go through like the hassle of of learning it because it's well designed, it's well explained. And ultimately, like there is no benefit for them. It's not like they're filing their taxes, right? So if they're ready to do that for fun, it's absolutely believable that they will do that to just kind of like help them with their job. So that was the standard. And we got there like really, really quickly. Building a million dollar bottom up, it's probably not the fastest way to do it. But the great thing is when you do that, the next 9 million to go to 10 was like effortless. I mean, I'm I'm just making it a little bit simpler, but there was 
literally no hack in the way we brought in our our first million dollar of business. And then from one to 10 usually can be a very, very hard journey because if you've sold the first million yourself, like as a founder, because you're really inspirational and you're a great sales guy, you're not going to be able to do 10 by yourself. Like you're going to need more people to do that. And they might not have the same skill that you have if you're truly an amazing sales guy. And so for us, people were downloading the product, starting to use it, buying it, you know, without even talking to us. So we knew they were buying the product. They were not buying like what we were telling them about it. So that was, I think, like the, the really interesting first part of the journey. From one to 10 after that, as I said, it was probably the easiest part of the company because we were less than 50 people. So the team wasn't big. Uh, culture wasn't really challenging. And, and once again, we had built the first mill without a hack. So it grew pretty well. 10 to further, like which is kind of like going from 50 to like 200 employees. I mean, we went to actually about 150 before the acquisition with Hilti. That's when culture starts hitting you. That's when it becomes hard to be bold. Like now you have a lot of customers in the market. You know, every time you make a change, even if it's the greatest change in the world and 99% of your customers are stoked about it, there's always 1% of the customers that will send you an email being like, this is unacceptable. This is not the right thing. And then you need to start really writing down what do you actually believe in and what are the use cases that you're actually trying to serve? What are the customers you're trying to serve? Because there is always a customer that wants you to be something you're not. And then like, you have to be like, it doesn't matter if they want to pay us money or not. Like, do we believe in what they're saying or not? And and when you start doing that, like you start actually finding a way to be to be bold at a time where where sometimes people are just, you know, nobody you, you cannot make the entire world happy. So that was kind of like a kind of a journey. Scaling companies is hard. Culture is hard. Um, I mean, culture becomes hard when you're not directly connected to the people directly as a founder. I think the first 50, 75 people, they probably know you very well intimately. And so the culture is kind of like how the founders behave. When you go past that point, you don't spend enough time with everyone so that they can actually adopt your values. You're not actually interviewing everyone anymore. Uh, we try to meet everyone when they start, but we we haven't necessarily been part of their interview process. And then, then you start recruiting people that also have different forms of belief, which is cool. I don't think we need to agree on everything. But I think there is a core sets of value that that we we have to align on, um, and so I think that's the second part of the of the journey that's a bit different. So I mean, at least for the from the high level perspective, those are those are kind of like the two big phases. And now we're in the post acquisition phase where you know we grew from 150 to 150 people, much bigger company to interface with. I mean, but we can talk that like as a separate topic. Yeah. So you you talked about being bold or being radical, right? Yeah. Or, you know, you're just being being that. Right. So that's yeah. that that's part of the culture, right? Like you're, yeah. you're, this is who we are. Now Hilti comes in and says, Hey, you know, like we, we were already like investing in you prior, but like, hey, like we yeah. want we want we want the whole pie, right? Like we want we want the whole thing. We want you to still run it and do that, but like what what stressors is that put on? Like, you know, obviously this is very different now. Now you're it's it's you've gone from this thing that you created that was an idea that you like it's just like gaming and like people love it and like all this yeah. stuff and like there's so much like energy and boldness to the to con the concept to then like oh yeah like Hilti's like like one of the construction brands yeah, yeah. Like it is like one of the ones that it's like oh it's man like now yeah like now it's a that's a it's like the the game changed like you you're not playing the same game anymore right and how do you keep that boldness or that radicalness that got you to where you are with having this much larger umbrella above you. 
So that's a that's a, that's a good question. How do we stay bold? Maybe we 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 can backtrack to what was the link between Fieldware and Hilti. I mean, the first investment because they came in at the Series B like completely randomly. They were visiting the valley. McKinsey, like the consultancy, organized like a Silicon Valley tour for them. They called us. The McKinsey office was at the time a couple blocks from our office, and they were like, "Do you want to meet Hilti?" And we're like, "Sure, we'll come meet Hilti." Like we had zero expectation from that meeting. As we got to learn later, Hilti had zero expectation from that meeting either. <laughs> you know, basically, we we just came in and we were like, I mean, they they were a little bit late to, for the meeting to start, and <laughs> and I asked them like, um, so what? You know, while we're waiting for the rest of the group to to get to the meeting room, like, what are you interested in? Like, you know, and they said like, oh, really? Like, we're Hilti. We do not invest in startups. So I want to be very clear about that. Like, we're just trying to learn. And by the way, you know, why did you show up? And at the time, I was a little bit upset. So I was like, uh, you know what? We're five minutes from our office, and we never know what comes out of those meetings. And so yeah. in that meeting, we start presenting the we start presenting the the product. And then there is this realization that the mission of Fieldwire with software, which is we try to bring productivity at the work face, like in the craftsman's end, which is exactly what Hilti does. Like that's that same exact value prop. And they see us pitching the company with software. And they're like, this is kind of crazy because you replace software with hardware and that's a pitch for a Hilti tool. It's like, yes, it's it's more expensive than the way you do it today. But if that's if that's your craft, is that's your job? Like you will be better off with with a with a healthy product, and and on top of it, there was something really random, which is in a in an unlikely turn of event, we had actually met a healthy team earlier that year that was looking for apps to pre-install on one of their range finders, which are like just kind of like measurement, you know, distance measurement tools, and we had said like, sure, it takes us five minutes. Here's here's our APK. Like start pre-installing on your Android device. And every time they were selling one of those, Fieldware was on it. And so we had a slide in that meeting to be like, because I mean, basically what happened is we realized the mission is the same. Management goes like, okay, we got to work together. Like, I really like those guys. Let's work together. And it was like, oh, we're already working together. Like, by the way, every time you sell, <laughs> Fieldware is installed on it. And then you've never seen a meeting just blow up like that. Just they were like, what's going on? You know? And they're like, did you just slap your screenshot on top of our device? It's like, no, no, no. Like, we're, we're pre installing. You're pre installing Fieldwire on your devices. And, and so they were like, okay, this is just too insane. And they walked out of that meeting and uh, and their CFO at the time was like, okay, we want to invest. How do we do that? And, and we're like, okay, we're in the middle of actually raising our series B. We don't want you to take a, a majority position in that because like, we don't want um, to scare, scare other investors. Think, yeah. Yeah. Like we like, we like VC money because VC money is clean from a signaling perspective. Like VCs only care about the commercial success of the company which makes it very, very clean. Like if a VC invests, it just means it's good. When a corporate invests, they can be a lot of like, kind of like other intentions behind it. And, and so we don't want too much of a round to be, to be corporate. And so that worked great. We closed our Series B. By the way, at the end of the Series B, Hilti just out of just sheer honesty was like, hey guys, I want to be very, very clear. We invested in Fieldwire, but Hilti doesn't acquire startups. So just that will never happen. And we're like, yeah, no problem. You know, so why did we take the investment at the time? Because we're excited about the distribution power of Hilti. Like Hilti has this incredible model where they have like, I don't know, 20,000 people in the world that just get in the red Hilti cars, go visit the job sites, just bring the tools directly to the people that are on the site. And that's a level of relationship that you don't find anywhere else. And so we're like, just imagine if we could leverage that to just reach customer with Fieldwire, like that would be a massive acceleration. 
So none of that actually happened post-investment. Like we tried to explain <laughs> it. It's impossible to get it. But that being said, four years later, Hilti came back and they're like, Hilti was like, do you guys remember how we said we would never acquire a startup? Well, that, you know, now it's it's our top priority. Would you consider working with us? And we're like, have you ever acquired a startup? Like of, you know, software startup like Fieldwire? They're like, no, like that, that scale. I was like, well, let's be honest with each other. The, the chance of success are very low, but you know, if we run a good process and we find that there is something that works, let's do it. And we said, let's do four meetings. And if at the end of the four meetings, we can agree on the vision and on the price, then we will do due diligence and we'll explore it. And that's what happened. It's the most unlikely of all acquisitions. I don't think they saw it coming. I don't think we saw it coming. And in the end, I think it ended up being one of the acquisitions that has made the most sense in the industry uh, compared to other ones that you've seen recently. Wow. Wow. Match, match made in heaven, right? Yeah. No, it's a... And so, you know, back to back to kind of like, so it starts with the mission. The mission was really good. I think a lot of the values were common. You know, craftsmanship is our number one value. I think that's also what connects us to the industry, but that's also a very, very core, you know, Hilti likes, I mean, almost over-engineering, going the extra mile when nobody else is. And, and you know, we find ourselves in that value. So I think that's that's pretty good. So now in terms of staying bold, which was, I think, where we started, in those four meetings that I talked about, the first meeting was, you are the big fish in this relationship, meaning that, and on top of it, you're you're, you're the buyer in this relationship, yep. which gives you a little bit of weight. Um, we want to hear the vision that you have for software. Where are you going? Because we know that if that vision is not compatible with our vision, like we're not going to be able to change it or to alter it significantly. And they literally pitched what we had in mind for where Fieldwire was to go. And and literally at the end of that first meeting, I told them like, are you telling us what we want to hear or is this really what you believe in? And and I think that's really what they believed in. And so a key part for us to be able to stay bold was to maintain a certain level of operational autonomy. And I was very clear. I was like, if we do this and if we're really serious about making it successful, I think we need to be we need to be very mindful about preserving organizational speed in the company. Uh, and that means a certain level of independence. And so I think we're getting that. I think it's been a, actually a fairly incredible journey. I'm part of like, um, you know, CEO groups where we exchange, we trade notes to see like, you know, we compare each other's business to to make sure to find good ideas and to help each other. I think most acquisitions and end up in in abject failure. I think 90% of them will, will more be like kind of like, less good than than not i think we're in the 10 percent right now i think like the business has been expanding like dramatically you know the support of the buyer has been incredible i mean like we've doubled the team in size i mean not quite but like you know very yeah. significantly since we've been here and yeah it, it it's been fun and and i and i do believe that like you know this this is this will end up being like a an impact multiplier for for fieldwire as a company which ultimately is my is my goal at the end of the day so when so when you start, obviously you're in development already. So you start this. Obviously, you had to have been doing some some form of coding, right? That had that had to be mm -hmm. a piece of what you're doing. So at what point does that like? Because this this happens with GCs subs, right? Like they mm -hmm. they're they're the they're the hammer, man. Like they're doing the yeah. work, and they get to a certain point where it's like, I can't I can't do this and grow the business. Like that's not yeah. how, like this yeah. doesn't work that way. So like what what at what stage you did you find like man, we hit 50 people and it's like, I need to just go work on strategy or uh, vision or like, I need to think about more 
people or processes in comparison to like doing the specialty work that you're actually delivering to the end user? That's a that's a good question. So you take the first prototype of Fieldwire, it was basically like just me doing that nights and weekend, you know, just the design, the code, the the everything, right? Then we raised some money and and Javed joined like as 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 co-founder. The next step after that was I probably kept coding for probably the first year. But then we started hiring three engineers that were better programmers than I. I mean, first of all, we had to rebuild <laughs> everything that I had written, uh, which was uh, which was quite a bit of work. Like you just scrape that off. There are still small parts of the code. Like our CTO was telling me the other day, there is still some parts of the code that are still mine. But I mean, I recommend we get rid of all of that. Um, and, <laughs> there's and, just um, a little, there's yeah, just exactly. a little just, line that I know is me. That, that's how I know the ship's still mine. <laughs> the, the size of projects we do nowadays. Is a little bit incompatible with the performance of the code that I must have written originally. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I stopped programming. So basically, I was I was overseeing all R and D, so engineering, product design, and Javed was doing every other job in the company. Like, which was hilarious because we had to change like on on support. You know, it would say Javed, and one time there's a, you know, initially you don't care about it, but at some point some customer customers started asking, are you like the Javed question mark as the co-founder of the company is answering the support call? And we're like, okay, we're, we got to change that. I think we renamed support like Samantha or something like that, you know, like yeah. something that would be a little little less obvious. So yeah, I stopped, I stopped programming. Then after that, I stopped doing design, but I kept product for a long time because I think that was kind of like the, the core. At the core, I think we're a product company and, and that's where most of the beliefs are contained. And then I think we went pretty far. Uh, then we have our current head of product that joined the team, Stefan, that that we ramped up. So first of all, you stop being a, a frontline product manager. So you have another person doing product, meaning that when you're in holiday, like on holiday, like not, not everything stops, you know. And then at some point started doing more CEO stuff. But I think the CEO stuff really started around, yeah, probably 50, once again, 75 people okay. when you start doing a a little bit more of that stuff. And we're a company that we're massive believers in execution. We always say like 10% uh, strategy, 90% execution. That's that's how we roll, you know, like it's, uh, I think we have really smart people. So getting to the, what do we need to do? Usually we can get there in like, in like 15 minutes in a discussion. And then after that, we know there's a month of work to actually make it happen. So we don't we don't spend too much time discussing stuff too long, but then, then we spend a lot of time just kind of like making sure we're super precise in how we do it. Interestingly enough, I think we ran our first true strategy exercise post-acquisition by Hilti. Um, <laughs> that is the moment where, wow. you know, where I think we, I think it was in everybody's head, you know, like, uh, and I think the key people knew the strat. So early on, everybody knows the strat because you're so small mm -hmm. that everybody has perfect context. And at some point, all the key people know the strat, but there's not that many more people. So it kind of spreads okay. But I think it's when you pass like 100, 150 people that that you really need to nail the strat in a way that even the individual person that is not exposed to it directly gets it. But so that's the first time that we started doing like yearly planning. I maybe we ran one one yearly planning strat before the acquisition, and after that it's been. So yeah, so we're we're growing slowly, but we're trying hard, you know. So I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say growing slowly would be a good uh, description. Okay, we're learning. That's, we're learning okay. slowly. There we we're go. Growing okay. just fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, everybody. Justin here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. 
As you know, Will and I are business nerds and love talking to leaders who've scaled their businesses using people, process, and technology. If that's something that gets you all jazzed up too, then do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. Don't forget to hit the little bell so you get notified every time we drop a sweet new episode. And if you know somebody who'd be an awesome guest on the show, send them our way. Just go to buildandscale.net slash guest. Now, back to the episode. So we talked you know, a good amount about people and culture, and it seems like you're able to preserve definitely a big piece of your culture, especially mm-hmm. post-transition now. And you've alleviated some of those worries. So when you were first doing this, was culture something that was really on top of your mind? Or did it become a thing when there were actual serious talks about acquisition or something in between? No, no, I think culture was on our mind very, very early. So the the three core values, I think, of Fieldwire were craftsmanship, trust, and exploration. So craftsmanship was, I mean, obviously craftsmanship, I, you know, like uh, I think Valve, like the gaming company had, had released like many years ago, like their their hiring handbook in which they talk about T-shaped people, meaning that everybody has a reason for being in the team because they have a very deep knowledge somewhere, but but they have a horizontal knowledge that allows them to participate with others. But so craftsmanship is about that deep knowledge, is that we believe in people just committing to a craft and becoming extremely good at it and, and getting to a point where at Fieldwire, we like to say that it's not a question of whether something is possible, it's a question of how long is it going to take us to do it. And that's that's an amazing skill to have on your team, like because for some teams, some things, some projects are just out of reach. You just don't have the skill set to make it happen. Like most of the time, when we want to do something, we can do it. We can figure it out. The question is like, okay, how much resources does that represent? How how long do we need to make it happen? So that's the craftsmanship part. The trust part for for us, it's trust. Trust is not given; it is earned. And usually it comes from craftsmanship. And it's like, we're a very trust-based organization. Like nobody is going to come behind you to check whether what you said you were going to do is done or not. But then after that, you see the world splitting in two groups of people, the people that do what they say they're going to do and the people that don't. And the people that don't have a very hard time at Fieldwire because we're maybe we're a bit impatient on that kind of stuff, but like we are a very like hard trust-based organization. Like the relationship that I have with my co-founders or like the key execs that have been with us for six to eight years, I think we enjoy working with each other because everybody's so freaking reliable that we can have a chat and they say, I got this or you're taking that and you know that it will happen. And you know, like those are the people you want to go to war with. Like they're they're awesome. And when stuff gets tough or when you're trying to do really hard thing, it's going to work because those guys will do it like 90 plus percent, like high conversion people. So that's the trust part for me, like that part of the culture is essential. And the third part was exploration. It's it's kind of back to that being bold. It's like, why are we here? And not that just like, I don't know, PG&E or something like that. It's because we want to go to places where we've not, when people haven't been before, right? We, we're trying to do things in a way that's different. You know, the way we started distributing Fieldwire was different. The, 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 the model of doing bottom-up directly to craftsmen in 2013 was unheard of. And, and you know what? We were like, we know it's possible. It's just that nobody actually has actually done it, right? And we would go on job site back in like 2013, early, like, 
And people would throw us out of construction jobs. Like they were like, you're crazy. Uh, a craftsman can barely use a pen. Like they're not going to be able to use a smartphone. And it was like, oh my God, you're so wrong. Like this, this will happen. Like the writing is on the wall. Like just whether you believe it or not. And so I think those, those values were there from the get-go. And I think you take the top 50 people at Fieldwire, field like the people that I think we personally were involved in hiring, I think that's the core that really believed in that thing. Then what happens when your company grows a little bit bigger is that I think you still believe in those same values, but sometimes you start seeing that there are moments in your organization when the behaviors don't reflect the values that, that you're supposedly all believing in. And so that's the moment where you need to really write them down and reinforce them and, and just make sure that, that people can know and understand the value and that it actually influences the behavior of the company, even when they're not spending all their time with you. And I think that's the part that was really difficult. I think it's the part when you go from 50 to 150, where how do you go from values that are learned by spending time together to values that are just kind of like learned through other means? Like you have to reinforce them in your hiring process, like in a formal way, right? You have to reinforce them in your evaluations in a formal way, and you have to find forms to just spread them. So I think that's the hard part. I think we we believed in the values from the get-go. When you scale, it can be hard to actually, it's back to execution. How do you execute like your values at the scale of a larger company? That's the, that's the part that is really challenging. I don't know if we have entirely the answer, but uh, but uh, yeah, we started doing it way more actively when, when we started going past 100 employees, yeah. Okay, so interesting. Uh, so it, it also makes me think of uh, the the BlackBerry versus iPhone, right? Like it, it's yeah. like nobody's gonna use a touch screen. Nobody's yeah. doing that. They want their buttons, and they like double down on this concept until they then didn't double down on it. And then obviously uh, yeah. the the history speaks for itself. So being bold and being uh, seeing what the future is 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 going to be uh, huge. So. Yep. So speaking of future, why don't we talk a little bit about what do you see as the main thing that's broken in construction today? That's a good question. I was reading something interesting this morning, and I think it was talking about sustainability in the market, in the construction market. And then somebody said, like, being more sustainable in the construction market. I think it was the founder of Fifth Wall and Brendan Wallace. And he was saying, not only is it good, but it is now profitable. And he was saying, like, it needs to be said because, you know, people are passionate about, about certain causes or certain problems in the world, and that can push the awareness or, like, the, the world in that direction up to a certain point. But if you really want to make everybody participate, I think it needs to be economically supported. Uh, like, basically, if it becomes the right thing to do, even from a from an economic perspective, then suddenly the entire world is not doing it, not just the people that believe in it. That's the beauty of capitalism, is that you don't need to believe in something if it's economically profitable. What, what I think is lagging in the industry right now is the, the business model in construct, of construction. I think we've seen very little innovation in, in the nature of the contracts that are being signed. It's available. There are plenty of very modern contracts out there but I would say, do they represent the vast majority of the market? No, they don't. The, the vast majority of the market is still hard bid. I'm passing the risk down to, to like the GC, and then the GC is passing the risk down to the subs. Um, that's still how the market works. And what is the problem with that is that it really doesn't encourage any sort of collaboration. 
you know, between the actors. Everybody's really trying to just do their best in isolation of the others because, you know, there is there is no benefit for the people that have faster risk than to, I don't know, be ahead of time. I mean, look, if you take a general contractor in the market, and I like I like to talk about GCs because they're a little bit at the at the center, and I have a ton of friends that are just really good GCs around the around California. And and one of them was explaining it to me one day. It was like, there is no benefit for me to be ahead of time or to be under budget. Uh, you know, and and why like there is actually a good rational. If you're ahead of time, your customer is gonna be like, well, I'm not ready to take over the facility, or like, you know, like I couldn't plan around that. If you're under budget, and like let's say you work with like a like a like a like a healthcare company, they're gonna be like, well, that sucks. I could have built another floor. I could I could have I could have added some some you know some emergency rooms and build a more profitable structure. Like so fundamentally, the incentives of the industry are not yet geared towards towards like increased collaboration from a business model perspective. And so once again, I think that's why you see a lot of evangelists in the industry. They're, they're the one propelling us forward. They're the ones spending energy to just pull the industry forward. But you're not seeing that massive adoption because ultimately the business model is not creating the incentives for it. So right now we still rely on the great thinkers of the industry, the people that are just truly passionate about driving stuff to drive us forward. But they're doing that like, by the strengths of their arms, like there, there's no, there's no underlying support for it. So, the one thing that I haven't seen progress is the business model. That's that's my answer to your question. That's a great answer. We oh, every time we talk about like, it's the it's the craziest business to be in in construction. Yeah. Like to us, it doesn't make any sense, which is also why we're super intrigued about it. I, there's something about the the lore of like these human beings are like throwing it all out there on a thing that seems crazy. But yet it's so fundamental to society to continue on. Like it's just, yeah. you know, it's just, it's wild. I loved the perspective on where we're at now and moving towards the future. Uh, towards the future. I loved how you put that perspective on there. I want to make sure that when we're looking at future, is business model the only thing that could be, that could be really changed or fixed or is it or is it more a symptom rather than the actual underlying issue right so we see that happening everywhere but in the same way in what your company did right you the symptoms were everywhere but you changed a fundamental aspect mm. you are changing a fundamental aspect to how construction business is working because of the people at the bottom, not at the top. I think that's a, and I think that's a great point. Construction companies, for the vast majority of them, don't live that long. Like the, I think the, the average lifespan of a construction company, I think you're talking maybe 40 years or something like that. That's the typical construction company. Rise, grow very fast, grow very fast under the impulse of the original founders. Usually they they found like either a market niche or, or something that they really can differentiate with. They just go very, very, very fast. And then and then one day, like they just either they sell or they start just decreasing in volume or whatever, or maybe the opportunity goes away. And then that, so, I mean, I think most companies, you know, will die one day. I mean, like you see the 
seeing the the Kodaks, the Xerox of the world, like just like every company, no matter how big, Apple will die one day. Like so, like it will happen. But I think the the lifespan of company in the construction market is is a lot shorter due to the fact that the vast majority of companies in our market are not just that giant. Like you see some lasting qualities to the very big ones, but 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 not everybody has that. And I think that cycle will create this opportunity that you're talking about to to have one day somebody coming with like, I don't know, a super vertically integrated business model. Like what who do you see like driving the market right now? So the integrated MEP contractors, right? They do everything from mechanical, electrical and plumbing. Mm -hmm. Those are usually the trade that used to fight on site in terms of who gets the space like under the ceiling to run their 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 cables or their pipes, whatever. And 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 some some players came out and they're like, you know what? We're going to design all three systems. We're going to install all three systems for the buildings, and it's a massively more effective process. On top of it, the margins are really good if you actually know what you're doing in that space. So that's an example of 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 people integrating either like just horizontally or vertically to just kind of like make the business better. Historically, you have the big GCs that are doing the the shell there themselves like they're doing the steel and the concrete like that's an example of massive vertical integration and why do they do it because it's profitable right because it it's supported by the by the business model so i think that's where the innovation will come from and you mix that with the fact that the life cycle of companies is pretty short in the industry i mean in the scale of yeah. of decades or hundreds of years and i think that's what will drive the business i mean we've seen that with fieldwire and what i mean by that is when we used to go visit customers that just didn't believe in what we were doing. Like they were like, oh, you're crazy. Like smartphones are never gonna happen. And you know, that that's and and I remember I think it was investors asking us, like, what do you do if a customer doesn't want to buy smartphones or tablets for, for their job sites? Or like our salespeople were like, I'm not sure the customer wants to buy. And I was like, don't waste time with a customer that just doesn't believe. Like, just work with the people that believe. They will they will perform way better. We're gonna make those guys super profitable. And at one point, it's like the water bucket carriers, like either either you want to stay relevant and you move over to kind of like a, just a more performant technology, either either you get out of business. And so is we're not in the business of convincing people that technology will happen. Like some people believe some people don't. We're just in the business of selecting the one that believe and just try to bring it to them. That's that's why that's why I, I will never try to convince somebody that that our stuff is better. If you don't believe you don't believe that's cool with me. That I start thinking about, especially on the technology side, you know, we're talking about, you know, you've got like prefab stuff that happens. Yeah. You've got uh, 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 3D printing stuff that's mm. happening. You've got uh, instruction that is uh, there's companies that are essentially like I'm building you your structure and it unfolds and it's like good to go. Like, you know, yeah. like obviously there's some setup to that, but like we're building this in a factory because this is going to be way more efficient. Like yeah. this is like more manufacturing than traditional construction. I I mean, we're obviously seeing more and more of that. Are you, do you think that they're like, we're going to get to the point here and say the next 10 years that it's like, yeah, you're getting a good chunk of the market. It's just doing these kind of things in comparison to the traditional type of uh, construction. Yeah. So I think prefab, I mean, prefab has been going on for like, 40 plus years, but it's yep. been going on for a hundred years, if you argue, you know, uh, about when it actually started. But like, so prefab is awesome. I've always been a huge fan of prefab. The difficulty of prefab is that transportation is actually a limiting factor. So if you have a big plant that does prefab, 
um, it only has a certain range around it mm-hmm. where, where it's still profitable to kind of like build in the plant and distribute it. Um, and I think that's a hard lesson that 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 companies have learned is that there are physical limits to the prefab model. Like you, you actually need to have a significant volume. Prefab works great if you want, if you have a concentrated market demand that is right next to your plan or just not too, too far. Like the idea that you could have a prefab plan in the middle of the US and serve the entire market actually doesn't work quite as well. I mean, I'm not an expert of the market, but from what I understand, that's the physical limit that is limiting prefab. After that, I think prefab will happen more and more. Like you, you look at California, for example, super concentrated market, hyper expensive residential uh, market, like prefab residential units. I mean, it's working. Like there are many companies that are doing it and are doing successfully, right? Uh, after that, at the scale of the market, not every project is, I think, working well with that. You see, I see robotics advancing. I think we're gonna we're gonna reach a point where robotics is actually contributing like just directly on job sites. I mean, like I think we're if if I describe the next ten years, last ten years of robotics, I think it was more of an experiment. Uh, it was more of a people trying to be part of the next the next wave. I think we're gonna see robotics com- contributing directly, like on on very like just interesting jobs. Like you see, like you know, like drywall ro- robots, and you see like just layout robots. I think that's that's getting to a point of maturity. And I think the biggest limiting factor there is I'm dealing with a changing environment and how autonomously really is my robot able to operate in that environment. And I think we're getting to a point where that is getting solved. Um, and so I think that's going to be really, really exciting. Yeah. So I, and, and by the way, like I'm talking about like the really cool new stuff. Yeah. If you think just like the the last gen, like just the stuff that Fieldwire is part of, I think the market is reaching a level of maturity where like now you know who's good and who's not out there. Like there's a lot of good solution out there. So to, today there is no excuse as a construction company to use bad software. Like there is enough good software out there that you can just pick one and, and just roll with it. And what's interesting is that that consolidation is creating a solid foundation for that next wave to happen on top of it. Right. So when you think about like just connecting tools, driving ecosystem, like that is that is going to be possible because I think the first layer has been figured out. Like the last ten year was really about figuring it that that first layer, which is what do you use in the field, how does it connect to the back office? Like, do you have a solution that does both sides? Great, and now build everything on top of that. That has been figured out in the last ten years. Do you feel like there's still stigma around uh, in the market around being burned by software in the past? I mean, I think we're 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 in an industry that strives on stigma, you know. <laughs> <It's a hard laughs> so yes, there is always stigma. There is always stories. Um, no, I think people are getting to a point, are getting to a point where 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 they're feeling a lot better about it. the The problem, I think, is more that we're such a hardcore market in that we always we only talk about the problems, and that's just that's just how we run our sites. That's how we run our companies and stuff like that. And so you hear 10 times more about the problems than you hear about the good stuff. Because to be honest, like I go visit our customers and you know, I see like how stoked they are. Like so, so sometimes I will go talk to the CIO and he was like, Oh, like by the way, like one of our guys forwarded me this email and like he's really unhappy about stuff. And I was like, okay, we'll spend more time with your team. Let's go visit a site together. And then we go to the site and everybody's singing praises about the software. And I'm like, okay, I think the problem is that 
we just love highlighting the problem in the industry and, and we we don't know how to celebrate the wins. That is just that's just the way the industry is. That's why I love it and I hate it at the same time, you know. It's the it's a you know that that's construction in a nutshell. So basically I don't think the stigma is a big problem. I think people are are getting on board with it and, and it's working quite well for everyone. That actually brings up a great point. So other than just choosing Fieldwire, which should probably be your yeah. first answer, how do you how does a how does a GC or a sub choose software? Like how do you go and say, all right, there are these many softwares, I can look at like reviews, I can get recommendations from yeah. other people, but like until I actually put my hands on it, like I don't know. Like I, I just don't know. So like what you're obviously sitting on the other side of this, so yep. you probably analyzed how can I get people to, to like our software a lot. So what what are steps if you are a, a GC or a sub that needs to use? No, they need to get their software game up. What would you suggest them do? So, I mean, in 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 general, I always recommend to put your hands on the software. And you know what? Like this is the generation where we're in right now, where in general, if you have a vendor that is not super open about letting you test their software before you sign this for your contract, I would be a little bit bothered by that. You know, there's probably a reason why they don't want you to use their software a little bit and compare it to another. So I would be a little, a little worried about that. So in general, there's always a way to put your hands on the software. In general, and as I said earlier, like I don't like to convince people to 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 buy a software or like to buy Fieldware or any software for that matter. I would rather help them think about the purchase that they're going to do. And in general, I tell them there's probably three things you need to think about. So the number one is, is does it adopt, right? I mean, construction is, is, you know, is a, is a manpower heavy type of industry. Like we have a lot of people. And if you have to fight for every single user that is being deployed in your organization, it's not going to work. Like maybe you can, you're going to do the first 10, then the first 50, and then you're going to run out of steam and, and basically your software deployment is not going to go well. So I'm like, ultimately, if you're going to buy something, it's incredibly important that, that you have a good confidence that it's going to get adopted. And that's how the industry got burned is they bought something that checked, you know, like the, it checked the checkbox, but at the end of the day, just nobody was using it. So like now you've just lost your money. It doesn't actually matter if the software could work. If people are not using it, you will have no chance of ever getting to that point. So that's the first thing. Does it get adopted? The second one is, does it scale? And most companies, most customers that we see have like a fairly wide spectrum of projects that will go from some pretty small one, even like the giant companies, they do like 500K jobs, but they also do a billion dollar job next to that, right? And so having a software that can span both sides, basically being like easy enough to deploy on your small scale projects, but it's robust enough to be able to, to take your big scale projects. There's only so many companies out there. Um, and once again, the only way you can you can check that is, is by seeing reference jobs. Like, so when you work with a vendor, like can they point at billion dollar jobs? Can they point at smaller jobs? I mean, actually the smaller jobs, you can probably test it yourself because it's mm -hmm. not too hard to imagine what a smaller job, like how long does it take you to deploy a small job? And then you have to believe them when they show you like the billion dollar job that they actually did work on it. So. Does it adopt? Does it scale? And the last one is, does it deliver results? It's like, there is a lot of softwares that are permissing certain stuff. Like at some point, are you are you witnessing it? And the only way to witness it is you have to just talk to people. Ideally, if you've tried the software yourself, you've, you've talked to your own employees, 
you would be surprised how little sometimes people talk to their own employees. Half the time, that's what we do, which is go to a customer's. They have, I don't know, like just 30 to 60 like people using Fieldwire, like that's started like locally somewhere. And we say, okay, like, does it adapt? Obviously, you didn't even try to push the software and people are using it. So I think we're pretty sure it, it adopts. The second one is, does it scale? Well, we can show you like reference customers. I remember like a call that I was with, uh, I think it was a, a Canadian company and they were like, you know, we make a, we make 200 million a year. Like we want to make sure that you can take our volume. And we're like, do you know Ellie's done in Canada? Yeah. I mean, like there are 3.54 billion dollar companies. Like, well, their company went on Fieldwire. So I'm pretty sure we can take 200 million. <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> but that's that's confidence in the industry. Like the, yeah. like the, the, the Canadians being super nice. Like they were like, oh, sorry, I asked the question. But like the, you have, you, this is past performance in the industry. Like that's why the industries thrive on. Like if you, either you can show it or you can't. Right. So, and then after that, that person was like completely confident. And I think it ended up being a great deal. And and the last part is ROI. And half the time, what we do is we take C-level people and we say, those are the people at your company that are using it. Those are their phone numbers. This is what they're saying. This is the intensity of their usage. Don't listen to us, listen to them. Just go talk to them. And if it works for like 50 plus people in your company, it's not a hard stretch to believe that it would work for 500 or 5,000, right? And literally every large deployment we have, that meeting happened when we're like, don't listen to us, listen to them. Like, and and then after that, like that's that's where you kind of like tie the whole three things together. But that framework is very basic, but I don't think most companies are necessarily thinking about it right. I think they're thinking about, okay, what software am I trying to replace? What usage am I looking for? Like, does it work on Android devices? I'm like, none of that really matters. <laughs> like, at the end of the day, that 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 is not why you will succeed or fail, right? So, anyway, that's a that's that's our framework, uh, and it's and it's worked well. And in general, right now, I think field and office has been figured out as we described. I think like there's a lot of yeah. good software to do that. I mean, we started in the field, but we talk about Fieldwire as a job site management software because we like to take the entire job site from the field side all the way to the trailer. And I think that's been figured out pretty well. I mean, in general, you're going to need a good ERP. I think the ERP space is still a little bit weird in the industry. You're going to need a good like job site management platform that just does everything you need to do on the job site. And then after that, uh, honestly, you can run a pretty big company with just those two softwares. And and you know what? After that, if you want to add a little stuff around it, like uh, you can probably do it. But at least at that point, you can pay people and you can run your sites, which is, which is the job of construction, to be honest. All right. You've been super insightful. I, I'm i pretty sure our listeners will take away something out of what you've talked about. And I think they'll love your French accent as well. Good so we got, to, we got to wind down and go to our last question. Justin, you want to give them our last question? Yeah, absolutely. So if you could go back 20 years, that's 2003, what would you tell yourself, Eve? Actually, what were, if you don't mind, what were you doing in 2003? Were you at Ubisoft? No, 2003, no, I think, No, no, I was just getting into, I was just graduating from, I don't like the, the tail end of high school in France, high school ends up at 18, uh-huh. and then you do two or three years of what's called preparatory classes, which is super hardcore engineering. And then you take a standardized test to go into engineering school. So I, I just got in engineering school, and I think, I was finishing my 
military initial training because they take civilians. And before they send you to the actual army schools, they, they give you a chance for two months to just, you know, get used to it a little bit before they, before they send you. So I went to the infantry school. That was, that was, that was probably uh, uh, pretty hardcore. And like, I think they're also trying to preserve the, the military guys from seeing a bunch of uh, a bunch of civilians mm-hmm. arrive with with no sense of, of of how stuff works. Okay, so why would I would why would I tell myself? Why would I tell myself that? And that's an excellent question. You know, it's a little bit weird because I think that's something that that I have, and 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 I think I share that with my my co-founder. Is I don't have a lot of regrets. Do I think I made a lot of mistakes? Probably, you know, but. In the end, I think the mistakes were part of the journey that just got us to where we are. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that even if I change the mistake part of it, I'm not sure we still get here. You know, I, I remember like when I joined Ubisoft after Stanford, like, and it's funny because uh, one of my friends uh, is working, uh, is working for, for a construction VC and we were, we were chatting recently and he told me like, yeah, when, when you went into gaming after construction, everybody was like, what is this guy doing? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. And you, and you fast forward. I didn't have a plan to go back to construction with what I learned in gaming. But had I not gone into gaming, I never would have been able to create Fieldwire. And then you know what? I probably had zero idea of what was ahead of us when I started Fieldwire. I probably, you know, actually, I think I did. I think I had done some uh, some projections of how fast we were going to grow. And, you know, like our roadmap, like in like in two years where we're gonna go when we started field art. It took us 10 years to get to get what I thought was gonna take like a few years. But had I known, I'm not sure I would have done it because I would be like, oh, it's gonna be too long, right? So I mean the short version is uh I think being a little bit uh like ignorant of some of the risk is what also allows you to to take those risks because you just you just don't think about it. So I mean I would say like stay adventurous. Just whatever happens, it's going to be okay. Actually, I'm known at Fieldwire for saying it's simple every time somebody brings me a problem. And it's not simple. I realize it's not simple, but there's like no points in dwelling over the complexity of the world. Just what can we do about it? Let's do that and let's see what happens. So so that's, that's uh, yeah, I wouldn't change anything. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure I could have done a lot of stuff better, but you know what? I didn't know what I know now back then. So yeah, it's simple. It's simple. It's simple. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's awesome. Simple, exactly. Uh, we will throw in all of the field wire and your social uh, uh, media stuff into the show notes. Uh, is if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, is there a way they could do that? Yeah, I mean, like super easy to reach. Like Eve Y V E S at fieldwire.com. That's my uh, that's my work email. Uh, I'm pretty responsive on it. And otherwise, like fieldwire.com is is our website. So, you know, awesome, awesome, if you have awesome. questions. Don't hesitate to connect on LinkedIn. My my rule is if you work in construction, I say yes. If you don't, I do not say yes. So so that's the that's the way. If I don't know you otherwise, like it's so. But I say yes whether you're a craftsman uh, or like a company CEO. Uh, if you work in the yeah. industry, you're you're very welcome uh, to be a contact and and in general, I try to be helpful. Awesome, awesome, well, awesome, awesome. Thank you. Oh, yes, you've been amazing. Uh, and uh, we learned a lot. So hopefully our listeners did as well. And until next time, adios. Adios. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for listening to Building Scale. To help us reach even more people, please share this episode with a friend, a colleague, or on social media. Remember, the three pillars of scaling a business are people, process, and technology. 
and our mission is to help the AEC industry protect itself by making technology easy. So if you think your company's technology pillar could use some improvement, book a call with us to see how we can help maximize your IT and cybersecurity strategy. Just go to buildingscale.net slash help. And until next time, keep keep building building scale. scale.